Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. I'm Keith Plummer, Dean of Karen University School of Divinity, and my conversation partner today is someone that I have been eagerly looking forward to speak with, Mr. Chris Martin. Chris is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers and a social media marketing and communications consultant. He has led social media strategy at Lifeway Christian and has resourced and advised Christian leaders and authors on digital content strategy. Chris is the author of a new book about which we're going to speak titled Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media by B&H Publishing. And uh, Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for taking time to talk about your book with us. Sure. Keith, thanks for having me. And it's great to hang out and chat. I know you're as passionate about most of these things as, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts about the book over the last handful of months since it came out. And a lot of folks, it's like a one-on-one kind of conversation where, you know, they're not, they don't really pay attention to social media that much other than using it. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh it's kind of an introductory conversation, but I know that you care about these things just as much, if not more than I do. So I've been looking forward to getting a chat with you just because it'll be a little bit different kind of conversation than one I've had with a lot of folks. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You had me, when I was reading your book, with your acknowledgments. Because in your acknowledgments, you extend a posthumous thank you to Neil Postman, whose book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, you say, quote, inspired not only this book, but has formed my mind more than any book short of scripture itself, end quote. That is saying a lot. Um, what's that about? Yeah, I did not know about amusing ourselves to death until like 2016. So the book was published in 1985. And if you don't, I'm not going to give a whole summary of the book, but sure. if you don't know what the book is, you can go look it up. It was published in 1985 by Dr. Neil Postman, who is a professor of media ecology at New York University throughout much of the latter half of the 20th century, but was writing mostly in like the 80s and 90s and died in 2003. And he wrote a number of books. His three main topics, from what I gather just from reading his books, were education, technology, and media. And today, media and technology are so wedded that sometimes it's hard to imagine those as different topics, but they are. They are different mm-hmm. topics. And, uh, and he does a really good job of explaining how they are different topics. So in college, I read his book, Technopoly, as part of a class that I took at Taylor University, which is where I went to college. But I never read Amusing Ourselves to Death. And um, so I, I heard of it from a friend in around 2016 and picked it up and finally read it. And though I did not read it until you know many years after it was published, I was floored by it and how relevant it was for our day today. You know, you read that book and anybody who's read it is listening, maybe nodding their head, knowing what I'm talking about. The book, obviously written in 1985, makes no mention of social media because there wasn't really much of a thing. I mean, if you, email was around, so if, if you consider email social media, then I guess. But obviously, our modern understanding of social media was not a thing in 1985. And um, he's largely writing about the kind of insanity and obsession with television, which was right. obviously like, some say television was at its peak in the 1960s, which is understandable because that's really when it was like first adopted. But like the 80s was almost, I almost see that as a sort of like second renaissance of television, like a, a new height of television because it was 
so dominant and so developed beyond how big it was in the 60s. And it was before anything else really quite captured the media landscape. And so he wrote in 1985 a lot about how just television was making us more interested in being entertained than yes. being informed. And that's, that's I guess, if you could summarize the thesis of the book is television and its relatives are making us more interested in being entertained than being informed. And um, much of the book, I think, though he's writing about television, applies to social media. And it applies to social media perhaps even more than television, just because social media moves so much faster than television. And um, I think that's one of the things that makes the internet and social media in particular so powerful. And in fact, I often joke that his, he has a whole chapter on the telegraph, which right. even in 1985, I feel is a pretty dated technology, but it was still a thing. I've joked that if you read that chapter today in 2022 and replace the word telegraph with Twitter, it aligns almost perfectly. <laughs> like Definitely. You don't have to make many intellectual leaps and bounds to understand how that chapter pertains to today. And so it's a very good book. And, and when I read it in 2016, 2017, I was really getting into the weeds of working in professional social media for the first time. I had been working in social media for a few years, but I had just kind of taken the reins of running Lifeways social media. And they're one of the largest Christian resource providers in the world. And I was overseeing 60 social media managers who managed 270 social media accounts. So I was well in the weeds in the thick of social media as a job. And so reading Amusing Ourselves to Death in 2017 really transformed my understanding of social media as this revolutionary tool that helps us communicate more efficiently in good and bad ways, but more efficiently regardless to really, I, I came to see social media as even more of a big deal than I had thought of it before, right. I guess is how I would put it. And, and again, that's from a book that doesn't ever talk about social media, but but because I guess that's just, that's the world I was swimming in when I read this book, amusing, it, it just spoke to my, I was able to make the connections almost seamlessly and it, yes. and it just changed how I think about media I and mean, specifically social media. Well, you made reference to the world that you were swimming in, and that is uh, imagery that you use in the, in the book. And you, early on in the book, you refer to uh, David Foster Wallace's commencement speech at Kenyon College from years back. This is water, in which he tells this story of these two young fish who are swimming and an old fish goes by and asks, hey, boys, how's the water? And they swim past him. And then one looks at the other and asks, what's water? And you use that illustration to talk about the, the fact that we are often just really oblivious to the environments that we inhabit. And using that imagery of water, you say this, the point is simply to help you see that the water is toxic. The goal is to help you recognize that social media is changing the way you think, feel, and live. Like water to a fish, social media has come to pervade the lives of everyone. And you even say that even if you're not on a platform, you cannot really escape social media. So speak a little bit about what you mean concerning the toxicity of social media. Yeah, toxicity and, and using that word toxic, it, it can kind of be a chameleon word and it can mean different things to different people. When I say social media is toxic, I gather this is kind of a uh, unpopular opinion I might be in the minority holding it, but I'm okay with that. I think social media has been a, a general net negative on society and culture, not a net positive. 
Mm. Um, and I, I think I continue to be proven right as the weeks and months go by, but that's just me. So I, I think that social media is not a neutral tool and the social internet is not a neutral playing ground on which we all communicate. I think these tools that we use, these technologies, because to, to go kind of back to Postman a little bit, but um, the difference between a technology and a medium or technology and media, which is just the plural form of medium, is as Postman describes it in a lecture I think he gave at the College of DuPage uh, in Wheaton just a couple of years before he died, I think. I heard him say it in that lecture, and I'm sure he says it other places, but he says it in that lecture that a technology is for lack of a better term, the the sort of ones and zeros, the electronics, if you were to use the television as a metaphor, again, the technology is the TV itself. Or for us, the technology is Facebook or Twitter or just the internet generally. That's the technology. Then the, the media, medium, uh, is the culture that's created using a particular technology. So if mm-hmm. going back to the TV, the TV is the technology, but your nightly newscast, your reality TV show, your sitcom, those are media. Those are the culture that's created using a technology on the internet. Um, the reason I often use the term social internet throughout the book, which we may talk about at a later point, is the social internet is is kind of the broader term. It's the, it's the foundation on which the house is built. It's the technology, if you will. And social media, uh, so, so it is Facebook. The social internet is Twitter. It's all of these tools, these technologies and platforms. And social media as I understand it, the way I kind of take this understanding of media and technology and bring it to the modern day is those cat videos you watch, those, uh, you know, those articles you read, those are social media, those tweets you retweet, those Instagram stories that you react to. Those are the culture that we create using the technologies of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. So the reason I call social media toxic or the social internet toxic is because I think these tools and therefore the media they create are bent toward negativity I do not believe they are bent toward positivity or encouragement. I do not believe they are neutral blank slate platforms. I think that they are created, um, not, I I hesitate to assign like malicious intent. So like, I don't think, I'm always hesitant to say like Mark Zuckerberg's evil. Like, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is evil, but I do think he's created a platform that perpetuates more evil than good. And perhaps mm-hmm. unintentional. Like I, I think like Facebook's platform is a sort of Frankenstein's monster that was perhaps created with a not evil intent, but has now gotten out of control and is and is a bit um, is causing a bit of havoc that even the people at Facebook don't know how to manage. Just mm-hmm. as an example. And so, while I'm careful to not assign sort of malevolent intent to the people who create these things, I do think, and even I mean, research and, and data and stories if you've paid attention to any of the Facebook papers that have come out in the last couple of years and, and all of that sort of thing, there's plenty of evidence to back up that these platforms have become designed in such a way and evolved, devolved in such a way to encourage troll behavior, toxic behavior, and kind of float that content, that, that negative content to the tops of people's feeds and generate more engagement around negative or toxic content than neutral or even positive content. So that's a kind of a roundabout way of, of just explaining why I, I call social media toxic water rather than clear water or safe water or something like that. I think it's for us, not only because we're sinful, but because I think the platforms are bent toward sin and brokenness themselves. I think we have to 
intentionally engage these platforms if we hope to use them for any sort of neutral or redemptive activity. I don't think we stumble into using social media wisely in the same way that I don't think we stumble into, you know, doing a lot of things wisely, engaging in media or culture generally, or parenting or any number of things because of our own sin and because of the systems that have been put in place. I think we have to exercise extreme intentionality if we hope to use these platforms for any good and and sort of purify the toxic water, if you will. (laughs) Well, I wanted to give an opportunity to uh, clarify because I know what you mean when you say that you don't believe that these platforms and technologies are neutral, but sometimes people hear that, oftentimes Christians hear that, and immediately the response is, well, the technology itself is neither evil nor righteous. And uh, when, when Postman talked about technology not being neutral, it seemed, what did he mean by that particularly, and how do you mean that when you say that a medium is not neutral? Yeah, I'd have to think, I have to go back and read what Postman means when he says that. Perhaps you know, I can say what I mean, Um, is that social media, uh, and let's take Facebook because they're the biggest, and I think perhaps the most egregious at at what I'm about to describe. Facebook, uh, now a subsidiary of Meta, I suppose, in this year of our Lord 2022. Um, Facebook has been shown by internal research that has been leaked uh, and now admitted to, but but mm-hmm. they they withheld this information to promote content that is divisive in nature over content that is uh, neutral in nature or or positive in nature. So um, if you've ever gotten on Facebook and felt like, man, all I see is like people fighting in comment sections and like people being angry and posting, you know, hate or anger or frustration. If you've ever felt like, man, I get on Facebook and it seems really negative. You may be tempted to think, oh, well, this clearly isn't what Facebook is intended to be. Like, yes. you know, it's it's broken. But what Facebook's own internal research has shown is that the platform has evolved with a little bit of prodding like human help, but also just in the way that it organizes content through its main feed and the algorithms, the mathematical equations that decide what appears at the tops of your feeds that you're on, that the algorithms have come to favor negative or divisive content over neutral or positive content because the goal of Facebook, well, the goal of Facebook is to make money and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But the way they make money is by selling ads. And the way they sell ads is by having a ton of users, having some of the most valuable real estate on the internet. And the way they have some of the most valuable real estate on the internet is they're one of the most, if not the most trafficked website on the internet, aside from Google. And the way they keep people on Facebook is by delivering content that is engaging. Now, engaging content, may you may immediately think, oh, like content that I like. Well, no, not necessarily. Engaging content is really morality neutral, sentiment neutral. It's content that makes you feel something and causes you to click or pause in some way. So you're scrolling your Facebook feed and you come across a a political article about gun control that you disagree with, and it kind of makes you angry. And so you comment on it and talk about how that article is dumb and you you think it's bad and you disagree, and then you move on. Well, in the Facebook, you may say that I didn't like that. However, in the eyes of the Facebook algorithm, that engagement of you commenting angrily on that article is now 
um, that, that has made it more likely for you to see similar content even though it made you mad because in the eyes of Facebook, it's good, even if it made you upset because it made you do something, it made you feel something and led you to act. Perhaps then, you know, later in the day, you pop open Facebook again and you come across a video of a protest outside of a police department protesting guns or something, you know, something similar in, in, you know, that also might make you mad. And it's like, well, wait, I, I, you may not stop long enough to think this, but you, you stop there for a second. You kind of like watch the video and you feel something and you don't, you don't comment, you don't like, you don't share, but you stopped and hovered over that video for three, five, 12 seconds. And you kept scrolling in Facebook. The technology registers any video view of three seconds or more as an engagement. Even if you don't turn the sound on, it can be sound off. If you're hovering over a video for three seconds, that's an engagement. And so now again, you've shown an interest in a piece of content. You're more likely to get that kind of content. Well, Facebook has found over the years that content that makes people feel upset or causes division in some way produces negative sentiment is more likely to get higher levels of engagement. And going back through our understanding, our flow chart of how Facebook works, Facebook makes more money when people stay on the platform and engage more. So it is in Facebook's best interest to give you more content that makes you upset in order to keep you on platform for longer, because that makes their metrics better, which makes their ads more valuable, which then makes them more money. Now, I'm not saying that Mark Zuckerberg is sitting in his office like an evil genius saying, give them all the content that makes them angry. Like, this again goes back to they've created mathematical equations that have kind of developed this understanding that negative content gets more engagement. So give people more negative content. Yes. And when face here's the, here's the sad part when Facebook has recognized, Oh, divisive content gets floated to the top a lot more and it gets a lot more engagement. They did not fix it. Yeah. They, they left it and they, they've said that they've since tried to temper that and we just have to trust them because we have no way of holding them accountable. And mm -hmm. this gets into Facebook has broken trust so many times in the past. Can we actually trust them? But that's a different conversation. But all of this, I mean to say that the platforms are not neutral because they weight content and Facebook is not the only offender. Virtually every major social media platform does this today. There's just, they've been around so long and they have the most data that they get they get most of the analysis. Um, but every social media platform is ranking and delivering content based on certain factors that mostly deal with keeping your eyes on their app more than other people's apps. Right. And this inherently makes their content decisions more centered on your engagement with their platform than your good. And yeah. sometimes those things are at odds with one another. And yeah. that's kind of where the not neutral aspect comes into play. And there are loads of money being spent on psychological research in order to determine what techniques, what strategies actually have the best return in terms of engagement. I have to admit, and I'm somewhat embarrassed by it, it took me through my second read to really grasp the, the turn of phrase that was involved in the title of your book, Terms of Service, because, you know, originally I just thought, oh, well, yeah, the things that we sign off on and we, as you point out in the book, very rarely read and we agree to to make use of a platform. But in the book, you say 
I am concerned about the terms of our service to an invention that was originally designed to serve us, but which we have come to serve. We are servants of the social internet. It governs our days and poisons our lives more than we recognize. And you uh, throughout talk about how there is an intentionality to affect our behavior. And you do a great job in particularly the, um, the second part of the book where you look at the various ways that the social internet affects our lives. I also have to say I was grateful for the uh, reminiscence that you brought up in me as you talked about AOL and what it is that AOL learned about engagement and why it was that people were flocking to it. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, um, if I remember correctly, what AOL found out that because they're, you know, AOL became the internet service for most people. Now, my dad worked for IBM. And so that meant that we were using Prodigy, which was an IBM owned platform, a partially owned platform, along with uh, GE and Sears, I think, or something like that. So we, we were using a platform, not AOL. And, uh, but AOL, you know, shipped all those trial disks to everybody and got, 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 they really did get America online. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. truly did. And, and I put this stat in the book too that uh, I forget who this came from. I did not come up with this. I read it in a book that they were the largest. And this was like in the 90s, right? Which is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. They were the largest producer of compact discs in the world, <laughs> which is just wild. But anyway, I remember that so, well. Oh, yeah. I remember getting them in the mail and, and sadly throwing them away all the time because we, we were not allowed to use AOL. But AOL figured out that the social aspect of the internet is what got people to use it more than shopping, more than reading news articles, more than so many other aspects, more than techie, geeky computer stuff. Um, some of these other internet platforms like Prodigy or others were capitalizing on other aspects of the internet, like shopping um, or, or reading news articles or whatever. Um, AOL really focused on socializing with other people. I mean, AOL chat rooms are the things of internet lore today. And oh, they're, yeah. you know, they, they're, but they were so impactful culturally back then. You, that was, that was the first time when you could, you know, have some weird interest, like, man, I'm a, I'm really interested in Frisbee golf, but none of my friends are. And then, but maybe you can find an AOL chat room about Frisbee golf and you can find a hundred other people around the world, or at least around America who are interested in Frisbee golf. That's amazing. You know, that was one of the first sort of like abilities to get up on a perch to the rest of the world. And it, and it changed everything. So AOL really figured out that kind of by accident, they just kind of bet on social. I don't think if I remember correctly that they weren't like, oh yeah, this, this is right. Like, this is how we're going to be huge. I think they were just like, well, these other companies aren't doing social very well. So let's try to do some social stuff. And, and it were, I mean, they figured it out that, yeah, people want this more than they want shopping or reading the New York times or other activities that they might be looking for. So, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I spent much more time than I would care to remember in AOL chat rooms. Uh, I remember even Christianity today had a number of chat rooms that they sponsored and yeah, I spent a, a lot of time there you you deal with a number of ways that the the social internet is shaping us you've got a, a chapter called we believe attention assigns value how does the social internet particularly here as we think about uh, social media platforms 
how how does it foster that misbelief that attention is what really gives value? Sure. And I want to answer that, but I do want to answer very briefly something that was wrapped up in your last question that I didn't really get to, which is sure. how we come to serve social media. Yes. Um, we, I, I wanted to say, I wanted to get back to this, which is related, frankly, to the how do we believe attention to science value. It really is related because one of the ways we're paid, quote unquote, paid for our service is through attention we feel we get. But I get the, I got the idea from us serving social media first by actually reading postman and amusing ourselves to death. And he, um, he talks about a guy named Lewis Mumford who wrote a book called techniques and civilization back in the early 20th century. And I, I read techniques and civilization. And it's a very dry book. It's not a great read. Um, but the, the point is this guy, Lewis Mumford, uh, postman calls him one of our great noticers. Uh, he said, I'm just going to quote postman here from, from amusing it says he is not the sort of man who looks at a clock merely to see what time it is. Not that he lacks interest in the content of clocks, which is a concern for everyone, but he's far more interested in how a clock creates the idea of moment to moment. Now he's quoting Mumford. The clock, Mumford has concluded, is a piece of power machinery whose product is seconds and minutes. In manufacturing such a product, the clock has the effect of dissociating time from human events and thus nourishes the belief in an independent world of measurable sequences. This is where it gets good. Postman says, in Mumford's great book, Techniques and Civilization, which again, I hesitate to call it a great book, but it is interesting. Um, Mumford shows that beginning in the 14th century, the clock made us into time keepers and then time savers and now time servers. And I think that's a really good point because if you think about it, the clock, when it first came around, was like, oh, wow, you mean like I can tell what time of day it is just by looking at my wall instead of having to like go out to the sundial or like, oh, well, it's just time for dinner. You know, I actually know it's five o'clock, not just that it's time for dinner. But then you come into, uh, you come to like, oh, I got to save time. Like I can get to the village faster if I, you know, if I do this rather than this, now I'm going to save time. And now you're like calculating time, but then eventually you become time servers because you mm. clock in and you clock out and you say, well, I can't do that because it's not time yet. Or yes. time starts to govern your day rather than being a, a, a descriptor of your day. It becomes a governor of your day, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, social media, I think has gotten to a point where perhaps when we first started using it, it was like, oh, well, Social media serves me because it gives me a way to connect with my friends, or it gives me a way to see what's going on in the world, or it gives me a way to watch funny videos. But now, more and more conversations that I have about social media, people feel a sort of obligation toward it, a sort of burdensome relationship where I, well, I, I don't really like Facebook, but I have to keep an account there because otherwise, how am I going to keep in touch with my aunts and uncles? Or mm -hmm. I don't really like Instagram, but I, you know, I want to be an author someday. And if I'm going to be an author, I have to like build a platform and get people to know who I am. So I guess I should probably have this. Like, I think we have sort of come to serve social media in the hopes that it might serve us back. And, mm -hmm. and I also think this gets into a deeper conversation, which we may get to, but we serve social media very much because if we didn't post content to Facebook or to Instagram, they wouldn't be able to sell ads. Right. So we, we are we are serving them with our work, our content, our family photos and blog posts and YouTube videos. We are providing the backbone 
uh, on which they built an entire industry, a multi-billion dollar industry of advertising. If mm. we didn't post content, they wouldn't have any advertising to run interstitially between all of our content. So really right. like it's a massive free labor force that they're building an ad business off of. Um, and so I, that's one, another very practical way I think we serve. So getting to the question you just asked about how we believe attention to science value, I think one of the ways we are sort of paid for our service, we certainly aren't paid in monetary value unless we're like an influencer that gets paid by a company for posting to Instagram, which is a, a thing, but it's a very small portion of the social media population. Um, we're not paid for posting to Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. However, we are paid attention. We are mm -hmm. given that sort of dopamine hit of the little red bubble that pops up on our apps if we have that enabled or uh, the various feelings of, of joy we get when somebody notices something that we wrote or said or posted. And so I think um, we've come to believe attention assigns value because I think it's evidenced by our obsession with what goes viral. And I write a little bit about that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we just come to see if somebody likes my stuff, they care about me. Yeah. Uh, or if somebody retweets me, they care about me. And I think we've sort of created this false equivalency that social media engagement communicates care uh, or yeah. community. And I don't think it does. Now, I think community can be built on social media. You and I have you know, been, been in community on social media without, you know, being in physical community. I think it's false to equate um, engagement and attention with community and care or, or value. But yeah. a lot of, a lot of us have come to kind of equate the two. Yeah. And as I was listening to you uh, explain that it just dawned on me that actually both the platforms and the users are operating on a form of this idea that attention assigns value. That's right. Our, our attention to the platform is valuable to them. And then attention derived from likes, retweets, shares, so forth, we're assigning value to that. And so there's kind of this um, symbiotic relationship at work there. And related to that idea of assigning value to attention, you have a great chapter on privacy and the extent to which we will often go in the desire to express ourselves and maybe to get attention to really kind of throw caution to the wind with respect to our privacy. And you, you make a distinction there that I found helpful between privacy and secrecy, because oftentimes people will say, well, I don't have anything to hide. And you, you um, say, well, wait a minute, you're confusing two things. What's the difference that you have in mind there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a conversation with a few friends pretty regularly about these things who, who don't pay as much attention to social media and privacy as, as I do, uh, which is understandable, but they, they're often, re they will retort to me say, well, I don't have anything to hide. Why do I care if Facebook has that or, or Twitter has that information or whatever? And I'm like, okay, like, I understand what you're saying. Like, yeah, it's not it's unlikely that a social media company is going to hoist my personal data over me in some sort of threatening way. I understand. Mm -hmm. Like, I get it. However, I, I do say that you do care about privacy and, and secrecy is this idea that, you know, you have something to hide. Or you're like, I, I want to, I need to, I need to keep my life from everybody and nobody's allowed to see what I'm doing. And, and I need to keep it secret. Like, yeah, we don't, we don't feel the need. Most of us don't feel the need to like keep things secret per se, mm -hmm. but we do, but we do care about privacy in the, 
best illustration I've ever heard for this. I did not come up with it is that you still close the door when you go to the bathroom. Even if you, you know, you, you don't care if Facebook has your location. Yeah. They can know where I like Facebook can know where I live uh, and what kind of car I drive and all that kind of stuff. But like, you wouldn't like, you know, if you had a Facebook camera device, uh, whatever those things are called, the, their like version of FaceTime, you wouldn't like turn that on in the bathroom. Probably like you're, you're still closing the door when you go to the bathroom anywhere you, you care. And if somebody said, you know, if you went away for vacation for a week and came home from your vacation in Florida with your family, and there were a bunch of cameras set up in your house, and no, no, nobody stole anything. Nobody, you were, your, your, your personal possessions were not violated in any way, but some stranger set up 17 cameras in your house to video you wherever you go. And they have microphones in the walls. You'd be, you'd feel a little violated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, well, do you have something to hide? Like, come on, what? Like you, you got something to hide. You, why do you got a problem with all these cameras in your house? Well, I just, I still want my privacy. Like, so I think there is a difference between privacy and secrecy and it's, you can care about privacy without feeling the need to have anything to hide. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and frankly, maybe we should have more to hide. Like we should not, not like in a malicious way, but like maybe we should care more about our own identity and our own data. And and I think there's just so much that could be done. If I could, I mean, I love what I do. I love where I'm at in my life and my career, but if I could start all over, like I would maybe devote my entire life and career to this idea of privacy and, Mm -hmm. and trying to get people like to care, you know, just because mm. so many of us don't care. And I do think in her book, Soshana Zuboff, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which some people like and don't like for various reasons. And you don't have to agree with all of every book you ever read. And I certainly don't agree with 100% of what Professor Zuboff writes in his book. Um, but I do think she makes a really great case for the importance of privacy. And that when you lose privacy, you really lose a sort of human dignity. And as a Christian, I would say a sort of image of God, you, you, it's easy to dehumanize people when you sap all of their data from them, I guess yes. is what I would say. When, when people become no more than data points mm-hmm. to sell ads, it's really easy to see them as less than human. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest, biggest reasons why we as Christians should care about privacy is because I think when you maintain privacy, you maintain some sort of dignity of the individual, which obviously I think we should care about as followers of Jesus. Yeah. And again, uh, thinking about the the two sides of the coin, there is the idea of the dehumanizing of treating people as data points, but also when I am living for, I'm seeing people as means to the end of affirmation, Right. That too is dehumanizing. You, what you were saying reminded me of something that I had written, one of the quotations uh, from the book, when people are viewed as little more than wells of data to be tapped for marketable information, it is hard to see them as beautiful beings made to reflect their creator. The invasions of privacy we experience through the social internet are demeaning to our personhood. And, you know, the idea of following someone in order to get a follow back, I think is along the same lines in terms of the the tendency to see people as having instrumental value. You, you have uh, some really, really helpful material in terms of again, related to this idea of affirmation, how it is that this craving for affirmation can lead us to devalue truth. Very good material there. Stuff about how it is that 
an uncritical use of social media can lead us to demonize people with whom we disagree, to dislike them, uh, and to destroy them. I just want to give a, a, an idea of all that's in here because uh, I'm, I'm experiencing frustration because I knew this was going to happen. There's so much here that I want to talk <laughs> about. But you, you don't just critique. You offer some constructive elements in the third part of the book. Where do we go from here? And you offer a number of uh, suggestions there. And among those things that you think that particularly as Christians, we should do in terms of being freer from the toxicity, what is one that is particularly significant to you that you'd like to maybe elaborate on? Yeah, man, there are, in the last part, there are six different ways I say we could go from here. And I think all of them are valuable, which is why I wrote chapters on them. Sure. And these are, these are very quick hit chapters. I mean, they're, they're like 2000 words, very short chapters, but the, the one I think is most valuable is the building friendships one, which is the final one before the conclusion. Mm-hmm. I think that um, building real life offline friendships. Now, Keith, I'd like to like, I'd like to think you and I are friends, but I understand that you're not my friend in the same way that my friend Zach and my community group is my friend, you know, sure. um, because my friend Zach will be here in a, in a moment's notice. If something happens to my family or whatever you won't, and it's not because you wouldn't want to be, it's just, you can't, and you don't know yeah. my life like my friend Zach does. And, and so I think it's important for us while, while I, I am not anti online community, a lot of people who write on social media, like I do and have a lot of concerns about social media would be like, Never make any like don't see social media as any form of community or don't make any friends on social media. Now I think I think that's too much. I think you can build relationships on social media. I have. Mm-hmm. And I, I think social media is better as a maintenance for friendships that you primarily have offline. But I do think that you can have relationships that primarily live on social media, just as long as you don't rely on them as your primary form of friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think that out of all of my kind of application steps where do we go from here how do we how do we detach our hearts and minds from social media a little bit i think building real embodied offline friendships with people who you love who love you who can show you actual affirmation not just red hearts on a screen mm-hmm. uh, who can be there in a family crisis um who can you know who can pick you up and take you somewhere if you needed like I think those kinds of relationships, those kinds of friendships building together. I mean, I think we just have such a friendship deficit, not only in mm-hmm. the church, but just like in general, we, we stay in our houses, we go online, we're afraid of our neighbors. Um, we, you know, we, I just think there are so many broken aspects of community today. And yeah, loneliness and so I, is through the roof. Oh, totally. And COVID only exacerbated. Like it was getting loneliness was becoming an epidemic pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and and COVID only made it worse. And so yeah, I think building friendships is the final chapter. And I think I think that is the probably the most important one. However, it does go hand in hand with the one that comes just before that, which is I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is establish accountability. And what I mean by that is like of those friendships you have, you need to have friends who can call you out if you're acting a fool online, who can say like, hey, Keith, like that thing you posted was really like foolish. You should probably either apologize or pull it down or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, We all need to have friends like that. I have friends who I can send 
goofy thoughts to and and like edgy not probably not helpful thoughts to before i via text message before i ever tweet them out (laughs) or whatever so i can be like hey i feel this is what i'm i'm thinking this thought about this subject but i don't think it's helpful to tweet but i feel like i need to say it to somebody can i say it to you and so like having whether it's preventative means of accountability or or kind of uh having accountability after you've done something foolish um Mm -hmm. that's but that's a that's a deep part of friendship that you're only going to get that if you have friends, even on a surface level. So I I think those two things are probably what I would say are the most important. I'm glad you selected those. I I was hoping the friendship one would come out um, because I really, really appreciated what you had to say about that in the, in the, as we're winding down recently, two well-known and respected Christian figures decided to leave Twitter. I'm sure there were more, but these are two that I know of Ray Ortland who wrote a piece in the Gospel Coalition titled Why I Got Out of Twitter. And shortly thereafter, Jackie Hill Perry, referring to Ray's piece, announced that she was staying on Instagram, but she too was deleting her Twitter account. Both of them made it clear that the decisions were their own and that they weren't seeking to bind the consciences of other believers to follow suit. But I I wanted to just read something from Ray Ortland's piece. He said, scrolling Twitter is an intense experience, but its intensity can fool us. It feels more real than it is, and the emotional demand claims too much. Twitter betrays the involvement it lures us into. We end up diminished, even injured over and over again. For years, my own cost-benefit calculation kept tipping in favor of the benefits. I no longer see it that way. And as I read your book, I was um, thinking, here's someone who does social media consulting. And I mean, you didn't pull punches. And I I often found myself shocked in terms of how, how frank you were about some things. And one question that really kept on coming to my mind is whether you experienced any internal conflict, knowing what you do about the effects of social media, yet being a social media consultant, uh, were there any times as you were writing about the topic, or even as you advise others with respect to social media strategy now, that you feel any kind of dissonance? Yes, all the time. (laughs) Um, So... Here's why, you know, I, I, when I first set out to write on this stuff and I wasn't deleting all of my accounts, the first question I asked myself is, is it hypocritical for me to talk about the negatives of social media, but still use social media? Like, am, mm-hmm. am I like morally out of line? Like, am I like not practicing what I preach? You know, mm-hmm. am, I, am I like saying one thing, but doing another? And I think if you, you know, one of the biggest retorts or responses I get when I'm talking about social media is... Um, is that I seem so negative about it and that I, you know, I should just delete my accounts or, or maybe the answer is just delete, like everybody who hates it, just delete their accounts. And while I think that's a totally legitimate thing to do, like I applaud Dr. Orland and Jackie Hill Perry for doing what they did um, because I think all of us have to figure that those things out for ourselves. I don't think that's the only answer. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think this is a zero sum game where, if you love social media, you use it. And if you hate social media, you don't, or if you think social media is a net negative, like I do, uh, you, you can't use it at all. I think 
it just has to change how you engage with social media. So I think social media has been a net negative on society and culture generally, especially Christian culture, which Dr. Orland and Jackie Hill Perry have experienced the brunt of. However, I don't think that means that it shouldn't or cannot be used for for even neutral or redemptive purposes. I just think it requires you to dramatically change how you use it. And I think it varies platform by platform, which is where you see like in Jack Gale Perry saying, I'm staying on Instagram, but getting off Twitter um, because different platforms are better at mediating relationships and connections than others. So like I'm assuming Jackie Hill Perry had a hard time getting away from trolls and people who are angry at her on Twitter, but whereas Instagram maybe makes that easier for her. And so like moderation and, and like community options and settings can make it easier for users to mediate their experiences. And so for me, uh, you know, when I hear somebody saying like Twitter is a super negative place, it's toxic, yada, yada, yada. And one hand, I'm like, yeah, I get that. Um, I totally understand. However, that's kind of a you problem uh, because you decide who you follow. And so for me, I like, here's one way I've kind of started to work through my relationship with social media as somebody who sees a lot of social media as negative. I am virtually never logged into my personal Twitter account. Now I have to sometimes if I'm going to like direct message people or whatever, or check like mentions, I, I try to like only log in once or twice a week mm-hmm. um, and, and on my computer when I'm at my work computer, not on my phone. And the reason is because on my personal Twitter account, I have a lot of connections that I kind of have to maintain because of work and that sort of thing that I feel sort of obligated to maintain, again, serving social media. But I am very disenchanted with the Christian corner of Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. And I've written it, I've written about this at length for a lot of for, for many of the reasons that that Dr. Ortland and Jackie Hill Perry have described. And I, I just don't like the way a lot of Christians conduct themselves on Twitter. And so I just said, you know what, rather than blowing up my personal Twitter account and unfollowing a bunch of people that I should be connected to for, you know, in case they need to reach out for work reasons or whatever, I'm just going to create a totally anonymous Twitter account that isn't me, call it a burner if you want, but that sounds like I'm doing something shady. Um, It's totally, you, you wouldn't know it's me, doesn't, it's just like gobbledygook in the name or whatever. And I just follow things that I'm interested in and are not related to my job or the Christian culture or, you know, cause I work for a Christian publisher. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I don't follow any of that kind of stuff. I follow a bunch of people related to tech and social media. I follow a bunch of people who write and, and create video content around video games. Cause I love video games. I follow a ton of sports authors and writers and reporters. I follow funny people. Uh, and I follow a few news outlets that tend to be more unbiased and just tell me what's going on in the world. And so those things are, I just follow all of those on my burner Twitter account. And I never engage personally. I rarely engage personally on my, on my one that is my name just a couple of times a week when I try to pop in there and check in. This has helped me tremendously. Uh, in terms of my relationship with social media, because now I, all those negative feelings that Dr. Ortland and Jackie Hill Perry described, I once felt and just about Mm -hmm. drove me off Twitter. However, I sat and I said, wait a second, I get to decide who I follow. I don't have to see all this junk. I can just create a new Twitter account that doesn't have all of this. And so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when it comes to the sort of dissonance, I don't think social media is all bad. Mm -hmm. I think it's bent toward bad. 
And I think the water's toxic, but I do think that there are ways we can put gas masks on and try to purify the water. And I think as a Christian, frankly, and as one who understands social media, I feel a sort of responsibility to try to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think it's something we should just abandon, at least that I should just abandon. Now, if you find yourself when you're listening and you have an incredibly unhealthy relationship, like Twitter is making you depressed or Instagram is giving you terrible body image issues, or you're addicted to YouTube and you can't stop watching it or whatever, like you probably need to just pull the plug, disengage, quit cold turkey or whatever. That's totally fine. Like that's, I think that's a fine way to handle it. However, for me, as somebody who understands these platforms, tries to write about these platforms, and to some degree enjoys certain aspects of these platforms, mm-hmm. I want to. F- I set out to figure out a way to have a healthy relationship um, and try to inject light in what can be a very dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think that just because it's bad means we have to abandon it. This is why I say I don't think it's a sort of zero-sum game uh, because I do think that there are ways that Christians can conduct themselves in order to redeem and purify the water of certain aspects of this very toxic environment that we're in. Um, Like I'm a part of a few communities on the internet that are incredibly uplifting and encouraging and are very good experience. Like they're the best of the social internet that I've ever experienced, but they aren't taking place on my Facebook feed or on my Twitter timeline or things like, like they're, they're groups on various apps or they're, you know, they're smaller mm-hmm. communities that take place. And there are a few YouTubers that I found to be incredibly insightful. And, and, you know, so I think you don't have to, to use a, a cliche, but it's helpful here. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. I think there is good that can be found. Um, the reason I wrote a book about all the issues is because I think that, and the reason I sometimes may sound negative about social media is because I think we're all pretty aware of the things we like, like yes. a book about here's why social media is awesome. A book like that, nobody needs that because everybody mm-hmm. who, who uses it knows why social media is cool. Like TikTok is like my favorite platform right now, which I'm kind of ashamed to admit, but like <laughs> Vine, Vine was my favorite social media platform when it used to be a thing and died unfortunately and tiktok is just like the second coming of vine in a lot of ways and i like the short little 10 second comedy bits of just people doing goofy stuff i love that it's so funny um and i i always leave tiktok like laughing or or learning something new not like oh i'm so angry at this person or whatever so so i think there there are good bits to it and i don't think we have to just totally throw it out Uh, but i i wrote about all the negative aspects many of them are negative, not all of them, because I think we often ignore those because mm-hmm. we're either A, just ignorant of them, like we don't know, or B, we intentionally ignore them like, oh, I know that privacy is an issue, but I just really like all these features that come with sharing my location with Instagram. Like I love, <laughs> I love adding my location to my Instagram stories. You know, I love telling people when I'm at the beach, uh, like, and so I don't want to turn my location, you know, we just... I think we kind of turn a blind eye to a lot of the issues. We're we're afraid, you know, a lot of men are often uh, chastised for being afraid to go to the doctor because they're afraid of uh, having a health problem. I I, I can sometimes be that person. And yeah, so, me too. Um, so I, but but so I think in this way, in a similar way, uh, we're afraid to look closely at the negative sides of social media. Like we're afraid to look closely at our relationship with social media because we're afraid of what we might find. Um, and that's a little bit of what this book and all of my writing is intended to do is not to say social media bad, extricate all social media from your life. It's evil so much as, hey, 
we're kind of like on a slope toward bad here. We kind of have to work really hard to use it for any good. So mm-hmm. let here here are some ditches. You might know they're there. You might even try to like dip your toe in there from time to time. Stay out of the ditches and and stay on the road this way. And so that's really the the goal. And so that's how I so my in my consulting to get very practical. The way I consult on social media is along these lines. Like I work with authors or I'll work with Christian organizations and say, hey, social media can be very negative. Here's how you can try to protect yourself from some of that negative. And here's how you can use a tool that's so often used to perpetuate darkness to try to inject a little bit of light. And so I, I just toward the consulting end and any work and in my day job, any work I do with social media is a sort of, let's try to make this water a little bit less toxic than it already is. We don't have to just write it off because it's toxic. Yeah. Well, you mentioned all of your writing and I didn't mention this up front, but um, you write regularly at uh, terms of service.social. I think that was where I first started uh, reading some of your stuff. And that's what made me want to read the book. You want to say anything about what you do there? What's, yeah, sure. What so people can expect. Yeah. So uh, yeah, terms of service social is a newsletter blog thing. It's through Substack. It's uh, twice a week on Tuesdays. I'm usually writing like a new thing, like it's a column, if you will. And Thursdays is more of a collection of things I've been reading. So I always love like seeing what other people are reading that I like. You know, so if I follow a writer who's really smart and I they're sharing what they're reading. I've always found that interesting. So on Thursdays, I share some articles that I've been reading through the week, uh, usually just four. And um, and then one little funny piece of internet content that I've come across. Um, so that's on Thursdays. And Tuesdays is more of like a, you know, a standard anywhere from 500 to 1500 words sort of column, just depending on what I'm feeling. So yeah, that's at termsofservice.social. Um, or if you go to my Twitter at Chris Martin 17, you can find it in the bio there. Okay. It, it delivers via email on Tuesdays and Thursdays mornings, but you can find it there perpetually. And then also I should mention, and this might be something we just talk about at a later date, but Terms of Service, the book came out this past February, but a second book that I've written will come out in March of this coming year. Um, I believe, I believe March, uh, spring ish, end of winter, beginning of spring. Uh, and it is tentatively called the wolf in their pockets. 13 ways social media is threatening the people you lead. So this one, whereas social, whereas terms, this one that we just talked about is more sort of like, here's how social media affects you and I Mm -hmm. for all of us kind of wolves. This next one is more, um, here's how social media is discipling the people you're trying to disciple more than you are. Does that make sense? That makes um, a lot like, of sense. So here, here's how social media is shaping the people you lead and how you might be seeing that and what you can do about it. So as I've written about social media a lot in the last handful of years, the most common people I hear from are like pastors or parents or people in some position of authority, mm-hmm. often Christians, because I'm a Christian writing often to Christians who say, the people I lead seem to be being shaped by social media far more than I could shape them from the pulpit, in my home, whatever. What do I do about this? And it could be about disinformation. It could be about sexuality and understandings of beauty. It could be about any number of things. And so I wrote about 13 of them. And so that Mm -hmm. that comes out next March and is more for sort of the Christian leader out there rather than just the every man, which is more of what terms is for. So just to be all aware. That is great. Looking forward to that. Well, I think that you have uh, produced a a great, great resource for the body of Christ in terms of service. 
I heartily recommend it to everyone who's listening. I hope that they will pick it up. Again, in terms of service, The Real Cost of Social Media by Chris Martin, published by BNH. And Chris, thank you so much. This has been everything I expected. Look forward to perhaps talking further. Definitely want to talk about uh, the new book when that comes out. But thanks so much for your thought and your time. Of course. Thank you, Keith. It's been so fun to get to chat with you after interacting on Twitter. You know, I feel like our relationship has gone from like social media shallow to yeah. slightly deeper with the <laughs> podcast. And now maybe sometime if we get to meet in person, it'll it'll feel like totally 100% real. So I'm, I, I look I'm, forward to that. Yeah, I'm grateful to have been able to hang out and talk and I'm grateful for your thoughtfulness, especially in this area. So thanks for having me.